0: Welcome to The Future of Education, a show where we consider what our education system should look like in 20 years. I'm your host, Lee Elberson, and I ask you to join me on a journey to the future as experts from the Charlottesville community explore our education system through a variety of different lenses. Today, we are joined by Brian Everly from Henley Middle School. And as you will see, Brian is just pulsating with energy and supporting our students. So Brian, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Absolutely Lee, thanks so much for
0: having me. Um, so just to tell everyone the format of this is, uh, Brian and I are gonna discuss some of the, the historical perspective of our education. We're gonna then fast forward thinking about what we want our education to look like in 20 years, and then kind of come back to the president and say, what can we do now uh, to put some of those actions in place? But before we do that, Brian, would you just uh, take us on the journey of your life and and how you ended up in education?
1: Oh, golly, that is really, really circuitous. And I know we've talked about it before, but yeah, so my educational background is not that typical. I had some really cool experiences um, growing up where I went to a tiny little private school in Maryland, even though I grew up in Northern Virginia. So already there was an interesting dynamic there. Then in eighth grade, I got the opportunity to do a boarding school in South Korea. Um, So I did that, that was a super cool experience. Um, And all those things kind of like really colored my perspective when I first got into public education in my 10th grade year, started attending the local public school in Arlington, um, Wakefield. And that really was kind of the beginning of like, okay, maybe I have a slightly different perspective than my peers around me. There was already like a sense that my experience was a little bit different. Um, And then immediately after high school, I took actually two years as gap year and I traveled the country. Um, I was doing this with a program associated with the church I grew up with. And once again, that gave me a really different perspective. So I spent a lot of time really kind of assessing my perspectives on things. And a lot of it came from the interactions I was having with people. And kind of the lesson I took away from those two years experiences, I wouldn't be happy in life unless I was working directly with people. So for me, I found, hey, this is something that really brings joy and sustenance to my soul, like working and involved involving myself with people and their lives. Um, and I knew I wanted to do that in some capacity, and being pretty idealistic and big-minded, I thought, okay, I'm probably going to write like some epic books, and I'm going to like make these massive impacts. Not exactly sure how, but I'm going to do it. So when I came back uh, to Northern Virginia, I went to George Mason University um, and kind of plugged myself back into my local church community. I was really involved with that for a while. Um, But during that time, I was really assessing, okay, how do I make this impact? And I was studying psychology at the time and I thought, okay, well, I'm gonna get into research and I'm gonna be like writing grants and I'm gonna be like shifting literature and it's gonna be amazing. Right. And then I got, so I involved myself in research and I got involved into that world. And then I applied for PhD programs and I didn't get into any. Right. And that is like one of those amazing experiences that I can look back on and be like, okay, let me take some stock do I actually like research? No, I do not like doing research. Can I do it? Yes. But was I more interested in doing it because of how it looked? Yeah. I, I would not have been happy sitting behind computers and really just sifting through raw data and analyzing it. I know how to do it. I just don't like it. Right? So this was one of those amazing blessings in disguise. So glad that I applied, so glad that I got rejected, and so glad that it led me to then look at different types of programs. Um, so during this whole season, I'd been volunteering in crisis health. Um, so I was a hotline operator for about two and a half years, volunteering um, a few nights a week. And That gave me a really cool lens because I worked with a lot of different community mental health people, um, either as volunteers or as resources, and it kind of gave me a sense of some of the different programs that would be available if I went to grad school, and so I applied to a ton of different programs, so marriage and family therapy programs, community mental health, and I was really not thinking I'd ever get into school counseling because Everyone had pegged it as like, man, that's like so much paperwork. You don't get to actually work with kids. And then, you know, I decided to apply to UVA and I got invited down for interview week. And the UVA professors really pegged a different picture of what school counselors could do. So that's really what kind of like sucked me into education. Like I, I blame all of the teachers at Curry who sucked me into this world because they really showed me that there was a very different perspective and lens. Um, and specifically I got sucked into middle school by sheer dumb luck. Um, I was completely convinced I was gonna be a high school counselor. And then I got a really awesome opportunity to do just some part-time work here at Henley during my last year of grad school and it just kind of wound up that there was an opening right around the time that I was about to sign a contract at another school up in Fauquier County. And, you know, my supervisor here in the building was like, no, Brian, you need to apply for this position. It's not even, you know, it's not posted yet, but I need you to like apply as soon as it's posted. And so sheer dumb luck being in the right place, right time, Um, yeah. And now it's been five years, this is my fifth year here at Henley.
0: Wow, yeah, it sounds like you've had a, a many moments in your life where you've stopped and you've, and you've done some introspection. Do you, do you find that that introspection and, and learning from the process has caused you to have very few regrets in your life? Ooh,
1: <laughs> so that is such a funny question. So I would say that has caused me to have very few regrets occupationally, career-wise, I'd say the lack of introspection has led to regrets in other areas. Uh, Yeah, so I can definitely reflect back and be like, man, the times that I've really taken time to really take stock on things, yeah, it has really made me a lot more self-assured in the decisions I've made. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't, but yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it, you know, because even the times where I've been like epically discouraged you know because I failed at something or I got rejected by something really taking time to like just sift through my emotions and think about it has always led for me to be able to see not just the silver lining but like just celebrate the fact that I tried like yeah
0: yeah that's that's a great answer and I think this concept of, of past fail is is something that's we're gonna touch on later. Um, let's, let's start with our historical review of education. So Brian, in your opinion, compared to 20 years ago, what do you think some of the significant strides, uh, that we've made in our education system have been?
1: Yeah, you know, so I'll speak like just locally. What I see, we're making some really great strides about being a lot more flexible in the curriculum. So really thinking about curriculum doesn't need to look exactly the same for everyone. Like we do have different areas for kids to pursue strengths and passions. Now I will say we're very burgeoning in this area. So there's still a lot more uh, that I think we can grow and expand in this. But like when I was going through high school, um, there were a lot less options in my opinion, a lot less flexibility. And especially now, like we are on the precipice of so many more options because of our familiarity with virtual learning, with accessing things from a distance. When I was a senior in high school, I did a virtual, what we called a satellite class um, with our German teachers. So there was only one German teacher for all of Arlington County. So we shared her between four different high schools, right? And that there was like maybe only a couple of classes in the school that were utilizing satellite. And it was this epic technology. We had like a room with uh, a person whose job was to actually coordinate the cameras and all of that. We didn't yeah. have cameras on our computers like we do now. We didn't have one-to-one back then. So technology in a lot of ways has opened up a lot of doors, and I think as an education system, we are being relatively creative and thinking, how do we use these mediums to expand opportunities. And I do think that is a great benefit, um, in my
0: opinion. Yeah, that's a good point. And and what about just even the concept of, of school counselors? Has 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 that evolved in the last 20 years? I mean, I, I think 100%. when I was in school, I don't remember there being a really big school counseling program. So th- those programs, I'm guessing, have seen some pretty significant strides.
1: Uh, 100%. A really key factor is 20 years ago, we didn't call them school counselors. 20 years ago, we called them guidance counselors. And we're still, as a profession, shaking that notion that when you go to your counselor, it's to fix your schedule and that's it, right? That's most what most people remember talking to their, you know, school counselor, guidance counselor back then. You know, you were picking classes or you were shifting classes or you were looking at your colleges or college perspective options. You're asking them for a letter of recommendation. That's what most people know. Very few would have had a personal relationship with their counselor. Um, I think it's not just education, I think it is societally. We're far more aware of the necessity of admitting when things aren't going well, being able to go to someone when things aren't going well. Like our willingness to accept when there is some triage needed when we need someone just to be there to listen it is becoming much more socially acceptable. And I think we are reflecting that. So, Virginia is making some incredible headway. Like last year, legislation was passed which mandated lower caseloads for counselors so that counselors can have more one on one relationship, can have more personal interaction with families, right? My caseload was significantly shifted so that this year I've had far more personal relationship with my families and have been able to do a lot more in my opinion for my families. So I do think I would say even in the last five years, we've been making some incredible headway.
0: That that's excellent. And I think that that brings up something I constantly think of. And I think what I see many times, especially amongst younger students is Difficulty in advocating for resources. So, you know, what do you, what can you do as a counselor to maybe help like remove some of the stigma associated with like asking for help or even saying you're having a difficult time because you need to get them to, to come to you first. So, how do you help with the students who, who don't want to come to you?
1: Relationship, 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 100%. So, we hear this often like from parents, from teachers. I wish the kids would just talk to me. I wish they would come up. Awesome. But rather than trying to like intellectually <laughs> convince kids, hey, here this is a good reason why you should go talk to people, you know, advocate for your resources, you do it by creating a safe environment through relationship, right? And that's not an easy feat and I don't take that for granted. And I can say that easily from my lens because a counselor and that's what we do but I do really strongly put it out there I think teachers are far more capable of building relationship and sometimes they give themselves credit for because so many of the teachers I know who are kind of give themselves a hard time like oh, I don't know how I can build relationship are oftentimes the ones who are doing an amazing job building relationship so teachers are far more capable of creating safe environments where, hey, it's okay to ask a question and it's not a stupid question. Thank you for asking it, right? And it's like those little subtle things of like, hey, thank you so much for asking. That's a great question. We do these subtle little reinforcers, right? But rather than like trying to tackle it from this big global perspective, I would just tackle it like individually in an individual's classroom, you know, with that teacher and that student. And the more that a student can build at least one solid relationship and use that as the basis, you can then start working on them having more trust in themselves. And then they feel more comfort, you know, and they can take those risks. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of talk about like a a stable base. If you have a stable foundation relationship with at least one person in the building where you know you can take risks and ask dumb questions and you won't be ridiculed, right? That's the basis where you can then feel more comfortable taking those risks with other people as you're building new relationships with other folk.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think that, um, that probably segments well into my next question. And, you know, in thinking about the, the way we, we look for, we look at student mental health, what do you think the profile of a middle school student is who has a healthy lifestyle, not just physically, but also mentally?
1: Yeah. You know, for me, like there's a lot of facets to this, but for me, one of the really good hallmarks of a student who is living a healthy mental emotional life is one who's taking risks, you know, trying new things not just doing the same thing that they know that they're good at but is willing to go out on a limb and you know so i say this to a lot of parents and a lot of teachers and i kind of have to pare it down when i say risks sometimes they're high stake risks and sometimes they're low stake risks like when i'm talking about a healthy social emotionally healthy kid you know a kid who's like hey lee my name's brian you know, what, what's your name? Introducing yourself to someone is a risk. You know, you've got, you stand the risk that they're like, oh, I don't wanna to talk to you, right? Um, you're, you're putting yourself out there, so to speak. And it's low stakes, but still, we actually look at those like, is a kid willing and able to make new friends and socialize? Right, and that's one of the common things that we do look at students and say, hey, you know, are they able to do that? Um, and then I would look beyond that and say, Are they trying new experiences? Are are they trying out for clubs? Are they speaking up in class? Right. You know, for me, a student who is doing that has those, like we talked previously about a student who has healthy, good relationships is then going to feel more comfortable to take some of those risks. Right. I do feel like it's all kind of intertwined. A student who is able to do that likely has some of those safe stable relationships where they've been taught that it is safe to take risks that it is okay to try something and fail right so one of my favorite like stories anecdotes comes from the owner of Spinks. She told this in a podcast and i can't remember where i heard it but she was saying that growing up her father at the dinner table would ask her and her brother What did you fail at today not what were you good at not what did you win at what not what did you succeed but what did you fail at and we've treated fail as like a four-letter word um just societally that we're afraid to talk about it versus like for me and my experiences the opera like i'll use when i applied to grad school and i applied to phd programs i'm glad that i did that right it was really hard. It was a lot of work and it you know ultimately led to a lot of rejection. It was painful, right? But now I can celebrate it, right? And it doesn't always have to be these high-stake things. Sometimes it is these low-stake things. Like sometimes I will try making a dish for my wife and it's totally outside of my comfort zone. Sometimes it pans out, sometimes it's an epic failure but I'm still learning, right? So we talk about like what is indicative of healthy growth, right? You can't be growing unless you are making yourself a little bit uncomfortable, right? So I'm not saying a healthy is always happy and like cheerful. Sometimes a healthy kid is going to be moody or upset or discouraged. And those are still healthy emotions. Those are still Part of being a healthy kid, right?
0: Yeah, I, you the the we're gonna get to the 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 pass fail i i ideology in just a second. A follow up question to what you just said is, when we're talking about the the social skills and those low risk things like introducing yourself, how do you think the use of or maybe you could say addiction to social media has changed the ability to do even those low risk things like introducing? Um, oh. each other not just with students but probably with adults as well how has is, how is that shaped their ability to do that
1: in my opinion it is greatly stunted their ability to do ability to do it right <sighs> mostly because they feel like they don't have to right there still is in like some circles the belief and this is my opinion so take it with a grain of salt you know but there is contrary opinions that it is completely okay and fine to just have an online interaction and have no face-to-face social interaction and i just don't believe that that's true i do believe that that skill set of like going up and shaking hands going up to a group of kids and saying hey can i sit with you right hey can i play with you right those are such important skills but because there is this ability or this perceived option to like, oh, I'm just gonna hang out with my friends on Xbox or I'm just gonna talk to my you know, uh, TikTok friends. Parents as overtaxed and as like pulled in a billion different directions, sometimes there is the temptation to say, well, at least they're talking to their friends online. Like, it's okay, I know it's not perfect, but at least they're talking to their friends. Like, yeah, I'm glad that they're talking to their online friends, but we really need to get them back into developing those social skills because there are of like face-to-face interaction. And yes, these are unprecedented times. Like there is the concern that COVID is brought up. So I'm not disregarding that, but to your question of, you know, just the prevalence of social media and how that's impacted, you know, kids' ability to develop these skills, you know, 100%. And I think a really, really big facet of that is kids no longer have the ability to have time, right? So let's say you and I are friends and we got into a fight. In the past, we both would have had to go home and sat with it. We would have sat with what we said. We would have sat with what the other person said, and we would have had all of our emotions and then our emotions would fade. And then we'd be able to relook at that conversation and be like, was it really that big a deal? And then I see you tomorrow. And I'm like, Ailey, I'm sorry. I was kind of a jerk to you yesterday. Yeah, my bad. What's the difference now? Okay. Well, when you and I get on a fight, now I'm going to get on TikTok and I'm going to bash you. Right. And now all of your friends are chiming in. And now I can't take back what I just said to you. And now you, you just thought that you said that my shirt was a little wrinkled. You didn't think it was a big deal. But now it's turned into this huge thing that's followed
0: you for weeks. Right? Yeah. So that's really important. I think, yeah, we tend to overlook the the, the conversations that happen in person and some of the the nonverbal cues and maybe there's this concept of pheromones and so many things about understanding somebody's body language that is as lost in a digital media platform. I guess something else that's that's buried into this is that when you and I are sitting in a room, I, I kind of have to give you my undivided attention. Certainly, I could get on my phone. I personally perceive that as very rude. Um Bubbing, I guess, is 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 what it's called. But you know, if wait, wait, what I,
1: was that term? I've never heard
0: that term. Bubbing, you are snubbing somebody with your phone. So if so, you're you're having a conversation with you and somebody else, and then I pick up my phone. I'm snubbing you for my phone, and I that's what I interpret it as is yeah. that whatever you have on your phone is more important than than me. And it, certainly that is the case sometimes, but. I, it can't be the case every five minutes, right? And so I think that's what's lost is there's so many notifications and things that that happen that cause us to to just be very easily distracted. Whereas when you're in a classroom, when you're in person, you by and large have to give that person almost 100% of your attention.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I will say, so last year, Almaro County, at least for the middle schools, we passed a policy called the way for the day because before kids would take their phones and they weren't supposed to have them out, but they're on their person. So, so hard. If your phone vibrates, you see the light come up, kids would pull it out. And it's really, really hard to talk to a kid about why that's not okay. If that's not what's modeled at home. And unfortunately, like we really are in a societal kind of wave where that happens more frequently than not. Like when you and I were growing up and cell phones were just becoming an issue, it was still so new that like it was super rude. Right. And we could like have that conversation, like, what the heck are you doing? Put it away. Like, I'm talking to you. But it I'm noticing it more and more. And I think this is gonna be just an ongoing kind of discussion and really something that, you know, parents and families, we have the control to be able to kind of set those expectations and standards within our homes. Like my wife and I talk a lot about this with our two little daughters and they're itty bitty. So we're nowhere near this, but, you know, we talk about like, do we want phones? Like, and whatever we want, we need to model it right now. We we can't have this conversation with our girls when they're 12. We gotta model it now when they're three and 10 months old.
0: Yeah. Well, let's get the, let's get to what you were talking about earlier, which I think is extremely important. And it's this concept of of pass fail, right? Yeah. Like when well, you talked about failure and you you certainly hear these things that failing is learning. And a lot of companies say, you know, fail early, fail often. But yeah. if the opposite of fail is to pass, shouldn't I just want to pass everything? Like, how, how do you change that view, especially with students in that, like, oh, I failed, so that, that's bad?
1: Yeah. So the question is progress, right? And it really is not a simple conversation. And you're 100% right. As our education system is currently set up, it is really difficult to explain to a kid that passing is not the goal. Growth is the goal. And if you tried and took a risk and you failed at it, like you tried a concept and it didn't go well, you didn't understand it, but you gave a dead level shot and you put effort into it, right? I think one of the ways that we really engage that, and I don't have a magic wand, I don't have this figured out. So this is still just Brian Everly's perspective, but we engage the conversation of like, okay, how much did you engage with it? Like, really? Like, did you strive to learn something new? Did you strive to like, to, like learn this concept, learn this skill, so to speak? Um, and I've found that some of our best teachers here at Henley do a really good job of like steering away from the concept or the conversation of like, hey, here's your grade. It's, hey, here's the concept that we're figuring out right now, this concept right here. And it's easier to talk about, like, when we're talking math because they have these, like, specific concepts. And I love talking math, even though I hated math as a kid. That was not my subject. But I love it as an instructional tool and in talking about, um, you know, these kinds of concepts. And it's really easy or it's a little simpler, I guess, for the teachers to be like, okay, here's this concept. Let's try it. Oh, I didn't get it awesome, dude, I love the way that you tried this and this. What was your thinking there, right? We can celebrate the process or celebrate the action of really diving and really taking that risk of trying it. Um, And I think that's really how we promote being willing to do that and being willing to take those risks when we put more emphasis on what we were willing to try. Not, oh, yeah, you got it. You know, and that, like I said, it's not a silver bullet, but it really is, it is conversational. It's like, where do we put the emphasis as educators? Where do we put the emphasis as parents? You know, what do we talk about? What do we show curiosity about? Am I only asking you about what you understood or am I asking you about what you don't get? Am I asking you about like, hey, what did you try and you didn't figure it out yet? Not like it's a punitive, what don't you understand, right? And that's the way so many kids interpret it right now, because that's the only way we usually ask it in society like, oh, what don't you understand? So when someone asks, like, hey, what's something that you tried that you didn't get? There, there still is that negative connotation. And it takes time to really rewrite that thinking. And I think it's important to note you know, I work with 11 to 14 year olds. So developmentally, They are still coming out black and white thinking. So taking risks is still going to be super hard for them. And guess what? As adults, it's our job to teach them. And one of the best ways that we teach them is we model. So when we try something and it messes up epically, we celebrate the fact that we tried something new. And we celebrate the fact, hey, man, that flopped hard, But man, I'm so glad that I tried it. We model it like we model it as parents, we model it as community stakeholders, our willingness to take these risks. And, you know, I mean, that's going to be my answer for a lot of things. You know, if we are stakeholders involved working with kids, so many of the things that we can teach our
0: kids starts with how we model it for them. Yeah. You know, I think um, what you're getting at here is, is being more focused on the process and not the, the, the outcome. And, you know, the out if you focus on the process, then the outcome does enrich us, and and I think it's it's very difficult for us to focus on the process, especially given the the level of competition at some points. We we constantly benchmark ourselves to other people, and and I, and you've talked about this before. How do you find a balance between focusing on the process, but also letting there be enough competition um, to be healthy?
1: Yeah, I mean. And I I just kind of want to put it out there, in no way am I advocating for that absence of competition, because I do believe competition is healthy. It's necessary, and it's part of our world. We're in a world where there are finite resources available to us. So competition is a part of the world we live in. So creating an educational system where there is no competition in my mind doesn't really set kids up for the reality of the world that we're about to pour them into um and i think having competition within school is not unreasonable i think where i i'm not about class ranking that's not the kind of competition i'm talking about but you could have like interclass competitions plenty of teachers do this really effectively and creatively you can have you know little cahoot competitions and plenty of teachers i know do that and make that a fun part of like hey i'm going to really try to figure out this concept because you know we want to win not because winning means anything or there's any real bragging rights to it um not that it's going to mean anything tomorrow but because competition in terms of it propelling you to want to engage in what you're doing it is a strong motivator. It's a strong natural motivator. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of little ways, like low stake ways that we can do it. Um, but then there's also higher stake ones. Now, I'm, I'm going to be very careful when I say this, because I'm actually not a big fan of you know, applications to limited programs in public education. Um, And i know that sounds very contrary to what i just said but i think i think there are ways that we can promote competition but we also want to be careful that we are not closing doors prematurely on kids right so one of the things that i talk about very frequently with my students especially when we're doing like registration for the next school year or especially going to high school I talk a lot about, we wanna keep options open. So all the experiences that I'm maybe gonna be pushing or we're gonna be looking at, we wanna look about how many doors can we keep open at the same time. Ultimately, you're gonna get to points where if you're gonna pursue one thing, you are shutting some doors, but we can keep as many doors open as possible. And I think in public education, we do have the resources and ability to keep a lot more options open to more students. And I think Albemarle County has made some amazing headway um, just in the last couple of years. And specifically with some of the programs that were only available to maybe our more elite students, students who had to apply and it was like super rigorous competition, right? And we've opened that up. So students who might not have applied students who might not have gotten in because they didn't look as good on paper are now given the opportunity to try. Right. And so now here's the competition. Now they're competing against themselves. So if I have a student who maybe on paper, he never would, he or she never would have gotten into Mesa. That's the math engineering science Academy in Albemarle. And that's, that's for years has been the flagship academy and multiple academies have come out since then, you know, ESA, HMSA, um, and we've got the Information Technology Academy that's now out there. We've got all these cool resources for kids, um, but they weren't always available because the application process really kind of discouraged some of our kids who were kind of right on that fringe, but who were super passionate about that topic. So this year I've seen tons of kids who wouldn't have gotten into some of those programs, but because of the lottery system, they were able to get in. But now is when the competition starts because now they're put in a little bit of a pressure cooker where they're going to be required to develop this skill or founder. And I think that's a good thing. I think personally, this is Brian Everly's opinion. I think taking that risk, like it might be hard. It might be beyond you, but try, you won't know until you try. And if you care about it and you're willing to fight for it, why am I going to get your way? If I'm your counselor, if I'm your parent, I want to give you that opportunity. And I'm going to tell you, yeah, you might fail. And that's okay. At least you're trying, at least you're taking that risk. There's so many parents who are afraid of giving their kid that opportunity to try and fail because they want to protect them? They don't want them to have to go through that, you know, uncomfortable feeling of, you know, disappointment or rejection, right? Um, and I get that as a parent. Like I want to wrap my little girl and be like, I, I don't want you to get hurt. But at the same time, I have found that now recently, like. I've become that father who's like pushing his screaming three-year-old. No, baby girl, you gotta climb the stairs. I know it's scary, but you can do it. Go down the slide. Let's go. And it's the same thing even when they get older, right? Yeah. And I think, golly, I don't even know how we got on this topic, but no, I
0: think you you're hitting you've hit on so many good things, and I think the the strive to 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 fail is, is really just the, the, is really the fail early mentality. It's that like, you can protect them, but they're not going to go through their life without failure. And the, the longer they go without failing, the harder the hit is to the ego, right? If you fail, when you're four years old, you get up and you brush yourself off. If you're shielded until you're 14 and you have your first failure, it is going to decimate you right in a way that, that you've never felt before. But yeah. if you fail early, fail often, that, that, that certainly helps out. I think the other thing that's very exciting to hear about is some of the strides that the school system is making and making it more holistic, right? Not closing those doors early to students. And I think that's a great segue for us to now put on our idealist caps. And let's fast forward 20 years into the future. Okay, Brian? So we're 20 years now and, and, and it's the, the world has been our oyster and we've made some dramatic strides what do you see our education system looking like in 20 years in in an optimistic viewpoint?
1: Yeah. So in my hope, it'll be a lot more tailored to students' interests, passions, and skills. So I do believe if we can help students identify skill sets, like personal areas of strength, their individual areas of strength, and capitalize it. And we make them like thinking samurai warriors at those skill sets, then we put a little bit less emphasis on the things that maybe they're not super strong at. And I'm not talking about not taking risks, but I think identifying your strength area is super important, especially if we're talking about how do we prepare kids for a working world, right? You know, I I think as an education system, we do need to think, and I'm not saying that we don't do it, I just think we need to have more conversation about it. How do we prepare kids for the world around them, the working world, the mental, emotional world, the romantic world? How do we prepare kids to navigate you know, this world that we call life? And all these things are not, they're not separate from one another. They're all intermingled. And I do think having that more holistic viewpoint of like, yeah, how do we prepare kids just to live life and be effective A members of society, but also how do we help them keep options open for what they want out of life? And, you know, I know when you and I first met, I shared with you this has been a leading question in my life, you know, a question that's really opened doors for me and that I use often with my students is what's the life you want to live? Not what do you want to be when you grow up, but what's the life you live? And I think as an education system in 20 years, I would love for that to be a focus. Of you know language arts teachers talking to kids not just about you know the books that they're reading but they're choosing books based on like how can we have conversations that will help kids be more conscious aware and thinking about okay what's the world I'm living in what's the world I want to live in what's the world I want to carve for myself right um, so in a nutshell I, I'm hoping that we will have a much more tailored. Um, and flexible education system. And I see good indications that we're moving more in that direction. So I'm hopeful.
0: And what will be the effect on mental health? What, what uh, do you think, like, students will so be, if you make that transition, how will that affect their mental health?
1: I mean, I think that gives a lot more opportunity for kids to be joyful, like to be doing things that truly bring joy for them. And I think mental health wise, that's really important. Um, you know, I do think we are making some incredible strides in our society to normalize seeking help. Um, when things aren't going well, we're doing, we're making good strides. We're not there yet. We're making great strides to normalize, you know, when things aren't going well, can I talk to someone when things aren't going well? Can I be self-aware to know that things aren't going well? Um, you know, what I think will be a really important next step for mental health, for education in general, is how do we create more healthy emotional environments um, just for baseline? So a lot of the conversation that you hear, like, popularly discussed right now is kind of like access to counselors or access to this or that, but that's only when things are going not so well or when things are like kind of spiraled a little bit, you know, what do we do for maintenance? You know, and I think conversations about having activities, having sports, having community events, having these natural uh, outlets and venues Right. A lot of things that got shut down during the pandemic. Um, there's a reason why we're in the middle of a massive mental health epi- epidemic. Um, it wasn't just isolation, it was a lot of the natural coping things that we had available to us kind of got deprived from us. They got taken away. But here's the thing you know, they were, they, a lot of those things were going away anyway because of so much. Uh, reliance on social media or on digital connection. Um, I do think in the future, as we're thinking globally about our kids, making sure that we're providing these really healthy outlets so that we're maintaining healthy social emotional uh, well being, not just when things are spiraling right so we talk about this topic a lot with younger kids, but it applies with no school kids and our adults or whoever. Um, it's filling your bucket. Like we need plenty of opportunities for kids to naturally fill their bucket with things that they enjoy, that are passionate, things that just fill their soul, right? Um, and it's not gonna be the same for all kids, right? Like for me, I get so much joy being outside playing, just playing other kids, what they really need to fill their bucket. It's just like 10 minutes, 15 minutes on their own, just reading a book while everyone else is being loud. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, that, that's interesting. And, you know, a, a follow-up to that is, you know, you said we, you've said before we need to lead by example. So what do we need to do to our educators, not just teachers, it's counselors. I mean, it's, it's everyone who's the stakeholder in that kid's lives. How do we make sure that they are are living that same life and that they are taking the time to do that so that they're leading by example? We we need to make sure that we have systems in place in the school system. And no. you know, I know the teachers I talk to sometimes are very overburdened. They have so many obligations that, you know, they don't have time for their own mental health. So so how do we promote that in the next 20 years?
1: Oh, golly. Lee, that, that's a long, long, long conversation. Um, I'm going to say something that is 100% of Brian Everly opinion and might not be popular and I'm okay with people disagreeing with it. Um, You know, I do think there is a lot of value to people not getting into education until they're a little bit older, right? I think there's a lot of value um, to people having industry experience before they get into education having a little bit more life experience. Um, And I believe that for a wide variety of reasons. One, I think that you have a lot richer lens when you can lend an industry perspective when you're teaching kids, regardless of what level you're teaching at. Um, But I also think we have an education system which is based on the employment of 23, 24 year olds, new professionals, right? Who are still figuring themselves out and their lives are going to be in massive flux predictably in massive flux for the next 10 to 15 years as they um find significant others as they move as parents go through aging as they have children um so much of their life is going to change drastically in 10 to 15 years from the time they hire get hired um, I think there is a lot of value when someone has a little bit more life experience. It's not a plus or minus, and I could argue the opposite because I think young educators bring a really awesome perspective when they come into schools. But I do think that when people come into education with a little bit more life experience, they have a little bit more perspective and they know what's being asked of them. Oftentimes, and this is another infrastructural thing, young educators come in and they are just super excited to give everything they have and then some. They're working, you know, staying at school until six and seven o'clock at night, then going home and grading papers. And then over the weekend, they're lesson planning because they're so excited to do something new. And they can do that when they're single and they're not married. They don't have kids and, you know, they're only paying a rent, but then it comes a mortgage and then comes a significant other. And then comes kids, life, life comes. And then there are all these burdens. And yet we are still asking them to do the same things. And now their mental, emotional willingness and ability to do those same things, is now not the same. And it's, de- it's depleting them. Right? So when I talk to a lot of, Teachers who are burning out. It's not that they don't love kids anymore. It's not that they don't love educating kids anymore, but it's when they go home and they're having to grade papers and now they can't play with their own children. It's costing them a lot more now, right? And I think we really do need to think about what are the things that we're putting on teachers' plates that just don't matter. We put so much on teachers' plates that at the end of the day, does it really matter or is it, stuff that we could cut one of the best questions one of my assistant principals had he's been asking this all year long of faculty of parents of students and it's a great question it's one that societally we need to ask educators because we're asking them to do a lot and we need to ask this what's something that we can take off their plate what are things that we are asking them to do that impede their ability to just be present and joyful with their students, but then also go home and be present with the other things that bring joy to their lives. Right. You know, if we're creating a system where parent, you know, parents have to go home and they're spending all their midnight hours, you know, grading papers or planning or lesson planning, just trying to do their best job. And that's taking them away from their own families or other passions and pursuits. um, We're really, we're shortchanging them because now they are coming into their classrooms with depleted energy. And it's not like they don't care. Of course they care. And they want to give so much, right? But if your bucket's empty, you can't like snap your fingers and it's replenished. Like yeah. joy is a finite resource and we have to fill it up. That's
0: yeah, well said, Brian. You know, you're painting a very interesting picture for me. And I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm going to think out loud and, and then maybe put some words in your mouth and ask you to correct me. So, you know, when I, when I look at the way our systems are designed, you know, jobs, look at resumes, right? Where did you go to college? Let's, let's boil this down to a few quantities. Colleges ask for test scores. Let's boil this down to a score. School systems depend on transcripts. You know, so every step of the way, we are actually de-emphasizing what you're talking about, which is those interpersonal skills and, and studying the process. There's nowhere where you are graded on the process. It's, it's we're very outcome driven. So if we were to shape the next 20 years and we get into something that is, um, you know, some sort of project-based learning or some, you know, immersive learning system, it sounds like you could design a project-based learning where you don't have grades. It's all based on interactions with, with students and educators. Is is that something that you think we should strive for in the next 20 years?
1: 100%. I would love that. Like, that would be so, so cool. Um, I'll, I'll give a good example. There is a teacher over at Western. I'm not going to name names. I don't want to embarrass them. Um, but... They teach a class from a very industry perspective, and I'm being very vague here purposely. But I, when ninth grader, when eighth graders are applying, are going to Western and they're looking at different electives, I recommend this class all day long, um, because the teacher teaches from an industry perspective, right? And I like that. I like that there is this natural relationship of, hey, here are legitimate skills that are required. And it's either you know them or you don't, either you're proficient or you're not, right? And there's obviously levels of proficiency, but when the teacher's teaching, it's like, hey, here are projects that real employers would ask people to do. How competent or confident are you that you could do these things, right? And I love those kind of opportunities for students, right? Um, for a wide variety of reasons. So yeah, you, you're hitting the nail on in Brian Eberly's perfect world. That would absolutely be something that we would do more of, and it would be related to what real life employers would be asking, right? And this is this is not new. This is not new. Like we are taking Brian Eberly is wanting us to go back to a system that was pretty prevalent 150 years ago right? When we talk about apprenticeships, we're talking about developing skills based on what masters in the industry know to be relevant and important skills, right? If you were a blacksmith, if you were a printer, you didn't start right from the very top. You had to develop fundamental basic skills, right? If you are learning to be a chef, you know, you're not going to be the head chef right away. You're going to learn. Can you slice vegetables, right? Can you sear you know, me. You're going to learn basic things first and then develop those skills as you show proficiency in those areas, right? And I love the idea that you can take project-based learning and tie it to meaningful projects. Meaningful, like where kids can see that education isn't happening in this insular bubble environment, but they can see it all around them because guess what? They did this project at school and guess what dad who works in the same industry is like, yeah, that's just like the kind of work that we do at my job. And now you actually have meaningful conversation and discussion, right? Yeah. That in my mind, education is a system plugged into the bigger sphere of like, Our world and not making it so different from the rest of their life is a huge huge goal and if we could get there that would be amazing
0: i am a hundred percent with you i am a large advocate of project based learning and i do think there are certain fields where you do need benchmarks i mean if you're going to be a lawyer you do need to know specifically what the law is and if you're gonna be a doctor you need to know these procedures but I would say that's a very small subset of the total number of jobs out there. And I, I think as somebody who hires, you know, who hires individuals, I would much, I would much more I'd much prefer someone who can finish a project on deadlines and understands the steps than to somebody who got an A in calculus. Because that is a, a, like you said, it's a it's a very uh, isolated and one-dimensional view of, of success. So let's think about the devil's advocate, then how do you benchmark and and how do you make sure that somebody has completed the skills going from, let's say seventh grade to eighth grade in a project-based learning environment?
1: Yeah, and honestly, I don't have a perfect, I I do not have a perfect way of saying it. Um, You know, maybe you create keystone projects like, I don't know, maybe for each grade, you do have keystones. Maybe you do ungraded ungraded systems. Um, there's plenty of different theories out there. And to be perfectly honest, I've not put enough personal thought to really have a very well articulated opinion about that question. Um, but I, I gut-wise, I don't think, it needs to be black and white. Like I think if a kid is showing that he or she has really mastered X, Y, and Z concept, I think there needs to be room for them to then go to a next concept and show that they have an even greater level of proficiency. Um, And that's what project-based learning allows for. Now to the question of benchmarks, yeah, like, I think there are some like fundamental basic skills. I don't think every aspect of education needs to be project based. I do think that there are some skills that don't need to be project based. You need to um, read a
0: book, right? You need to be able to do f- basic math that would be required for financial literacy and things like that, right? Yeah.
1: Exactly, right? But I think having the overall structure based on projects and then you use these supplement or these other activities or these other Um, lessons to kind of supplement that development of that skill. I do think that that's the bigger picture. Um, And, you know, I'm not going to disregard the value of, you know, standardized tests, right? They're not the end all be all, but they are a data point, right? So let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. They serve a value, right? They are not the whole picture, not, not by any stretch of the imagination, you know, but, I don't believe we should do away with them. I do believe they serve a value. They give us a conversation point, right? And that we emphasize that all the time, especially this year, we've been emphasizing that a lot. Um, SOLs, map scores, whatever the test you might be using, um, they're just a data point. But you know, I think even in a project-based learning environment, still having those kind of data points like standardized tests, um, they're useful. So personally, Brian Eberle opinion here, I, I hope they don't go away. I hope we change our relationship with them. I hope we change where funding comes from. I hope we change how, what conclusions we come to based on scores. I hope that Scores are used as conversation starters, not conversation enders.
0: Great, so Brian, what could we, what can we do right now to help move forward project-based learning? You know, assuming that we, we have some ability to make changes right now, which you and I are just one person at an organization, but what can we do to, to move this forward right now?
1: Yeah, and you know, I've seen a lot of that, at least, you know, here locally, Um, at my school, within the county, you know, as we have taken away some of the, some of the pressures that teachers have felt, right? Like you have to teach this, have to teach that. We've, we've loosened some things. So I've seen a lot of teachers, at least this year, feel a lot more freedom to take risks in doing projects um, that they might not have felt they had the time or ability to do so before. So I do think looking at what we are putting requirement wise on teachers, and some of us, you know, we don't, you and I don't have control over. Some of these benchmarks are federal or state mandated, and we don't have control yet over those things. Um, But I think I've seen more willingness to do projects when some of those weights are removed, so to speak. Um, I think that's one way we do it. And I do, I see in my county, in Albemarle, another way that we're doing it is we are opening more doors for students to have access um, to different opportunities, academic pursuits, um, because, you know, MESA, ESA, HMSA, these more targeted, specific um academic lenses that are following these pursuits, they lend themselves to more project based learning. And I see the county putting a lot of investment into having these opportunities. And I think we can do that on a lot of different levels. We we, we can do that in a lot of different ways. But I think continuing to pursue these different avenues um, for learning is important.
0: Great. So, you know, you've talked a little bit about, you know, our education sometimes can be very insular, right? We do things in our education system that that aren't reproduced sometimes in the job world. And even amongst <laughs> and even amongst educa- educators, think of how insulated we are. I am in a tutoring company, you are in, in a public school. I know people in independent schools, Computers for Kids does it in the nonprofit sector. And how often do you and I really interact? I would say not enough. So, it, for for trying to make progress in this in the future, how can we as organizations interact more since we all have the same goal to help students have a better future? Yeah,
1: golly. Um, and there—that that is not a short answer. Um, yeah, maybe if I were to sum it up, it would be relationships. Once again, relationships. And that seems like an oversimplified answer, but really that's where it comes down to. Um, When we talk about partnerships and collaboration, it is networking and networking is relationships like, heck, you and I connected um, just by networking. We both have the personal habit of networking and being curious about other people's perspectives and skill sets. And that's what led us to connect. Um, And I think that it starts personally, like, the connections that we have and then maybe this branches out. Like I've already referred kids to Claiborne um, because I knew of y'all in the community. And this is before you and I ever had any personal interaction, but your name was known. Claiborne was known. And we would recommend families to Claiborne or recommend to them. Like y'all are part of a list of uh, tutoring services that we have available because right. you know our families need access. But this, this kind of discourse and interaction, which in my mind is a 100 times richer, right? I'm valuing this discourse more so than just when I recommend a kid to, you know, pursue tutoring services, because this is, you know, planning new ideas, new thoughts in my mind. And who knows where this conversation will lead, Right? maybe someone listening into this conversation uh, will take something away. Maybe when I share this link to my faculty, um, they'll take something away, who knows? Um, but I do think it, it is relationships. Now I know sometimes as a big institution like Albemarle County, we, have, we do have to be very careful about the partnerships that we bring in because we are talking about students. So when I'm building partnerships. And are so many people I would love to bring in to talk to my kids, but I have to be super careful. So we do have some hoops and hurdles we have to jump through. But if I've built a personal relationship with you, and I know someone from my past, so I know someone from the community who's outside of the school, and I can pair y'all together, that is something that I can do. And, you know, counselors take a lot of But that is something that we do as advocates, we are community bridges. Right. And I think anyone in education can also serve in that role of being a community bridge. Right. Um, But it takes the willingness to be a little bit curious. It takes the willingness to take time to have these kinds of conversations like I think you and I met first for over. It was like almost a year ago we just met for coffee. There's a right. willingness on both our parts to say, hey, don't know where this is gonna go, but like dude seems interesting. Let's talk.
0: Yeah. I think you know, it, you really do embody this sort of taking taking risks and and taking chances. And I think that's like you said, you are trying to lead by example. And you know, I I think it's these sort of interactions are extremely important. And I wonder if if, we get a, if there's enough of us, I've heard project-based learning and, and self-directed learning and intrinsic motivation thrown around a lot. I wonder if Charlottesville needs a symposium for us to sponsor where we get all of us in a room and let's just have conversations You know, at, at, at a grand scale of like, hey, this yeah. is what we all want. What can we do as, as organizations? And I guess even a follow-up question to you is, how do you see public schools and independent schools and, and more specifically, the students interacting in, in 20 years. Right now, those are very insular. How do we get more collaboration amongst those student bodies when they're all students and, and and passionate about education?
1: I would love that so much, Lee. And I don't have a perfect answer for that. Right now, the only crossover is athletics. Um, and that's either the schools are competing, but even there, that's limited. So the most athletics happens through club athletics, um, like and unfortunately, there is, it, it, it's a very limited number of our population who access those types of clubs where you know, kids from the independent schools or private schools would be playing with kids from public schools. Um, so it's a very limited number of students who are able to do that. I think a really good answer to that is we provide more community-based activities, which are accessible to all. And so I've had this conversation with some of my colleagues here, but back in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, um, many more schools, public or independent, had more of a community center model where they were the epicenters. The building was the epicenter for community activity, right? That's where sports were held. That's where clubs and dances and like fun that was had that's where community was formed right in these places and during this time um you know right now if you're wanting to be involved in sports if if you're a middle school student you have to do either rec or if you're wanting to do it a little bit more actively you're gonna do it through travel but we don't have anything really for academic discourse we don't really have anything for um, intellectual or drama pursuits. Or if we do, they're very small and few. Like there are some great organizations doing some great work out there. So I'm not discounting. If you are working with DMR, power to you. Uh, um, you know, But what you're talking about is like a symposium of all of us stakeholders working in different faculties. You're right. We're all working towards the same goal and we have the same common purpose and vision. Why couldn't we put our resources together? Why couldn't we say, hey, let's really look at how do we really put our collective brain power um, and resources, our time, our effort, our energy, our money into creating these types of environments that would be equitable to all, right? So that's actually when I've had conversations about like the community center perspective For schools we've been talking from an equity lens right because a lot of our kids who are really disadvantaged right now are the ones who don't have access to transportation who don't have access to these kind of clubs and right now it's like the sports are right now the only way any of these kids are having any outside of school interaction and if you're not plugged into those athletic communities you really don't got much at least here right? And I think talking about how do we create those rich social, academic, intellectual um, discourses or opportunities, I think that would be a great place to start with a symposium. And, you know, the question is, you know, where do we get funding? Where do we get time? And ultimately, like anything that's new is going to cost us something, right? It's going to cost us our time, energy, and money, usually a combination of all three, right? But, Man, that's a great place to start. I love that question.
0: All right. Well, uh, yes, I think that get, that gives us a task to talk about next time you and I chat. There are a few questions that came in. We have only got a few minutes, so I'm going to have to cherry pick these. A really interesting question says, with today's uh, socially awkward youth, in regards to <laughs> personal face-to-face communications, is there a text line or, or some sort of platform where students can contact school counselors or request help without having to meet face-to-face.
1: Yeah, 100%. So Elmorrow County has the anonymous alerts, um, which is a way to be able to let us know if there's big concerns or issues. Um, But also I've had students use that just to say, hey, you know, this is something. and That's an anonymous thing. I have plenty of students who will email me say, hey, Mr. I I don't really want to meet, but I've got X, Y, and Z going on. Now, I think it's completely naive of us to think that a sixth grader or seventh grader has the mental muscle uh, to use some of these platforms. Right. And I'm not going to be just giving my phone. So right now, the platform that kids are most comfortable with are the ones that come on their phone. Right. And this is Brian Everly, personally, I'm not using like Twitter or TikTok or any of those things, but many educators do. And many educators use their handles um, as platforms to be able to engage their students who might not wanna do a face-to-face conversation. Now, I'm gonna push back on the questioner just a little bit. I think just because it's uncomfortable for them. Yeah, I wanna create opportunities for them to ask anyway. Like I want them to ask the question and not ask it rather than not ask it. But I, I don't want to take away the points where they really have to ask me and come face to face and talk to me. Right. I don't want to take away that impetus where they have to push themselves a little bit. If we only create these avenues where they don't ever have to talk to me face to face, then they're never really gonna develop that skill. And I do think it's a super important skill that will ne- the need for it will never go away in Brian Everly's opinion.
0: Yeah, great, great answer. And uh, yeah, I think very cohesive of what you've mentioned before. All right, one final question for you. So this is an interesting one. A parent uh, gave me this actually before the interview, they weren't able to chime in. They, they were curious about what's the awareness level of middle school students with respect to how their skill sets would fit to a profession. And, and I guess you could reframe it as like do they do they have an idea of, of how their skill sets will 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 relay to a job down the road?
1: Vaguely. Super okay. vaguely. If you're a sixth grader, not at all. If you're an eighth grader, maybe. But it's super vague because it's a because it's a world away. Now who knows? Maybe things would be a little bit different if. We had sixth graders super exposed to the industry. If they were like nose to the grindstone, like exposed to industry perspectives, then maybe they would see more of that connection a little bit sooner, right? But we've talked a little bit about this throughout this conversation. One of the challenges we often face is really there is this massive disconnect between the environment that we create in this insular pod of education and industry. And it really is hard to kind of grasp what does this matter? Like I can't tell you how often I'll hear a kid come up to me, Mr. Everly, why am I learning this? It doesn't even matter. Like I'm never gonna use this in real life. And unfortunately, oftentimes I gotta be like, yeah, I don't know when you're gonna use this in real life. Sorry right? But, you know, I think, yes, developmentally, they there are things that they won't necessarily be able to see unless we really make that bridge for them, but it's a lot easier when we're modeling it when we're seeing it, right? So, like, if the things that they're learning about in math class are directly related to the automotive industry and Johnny's got a dad who works in the automotive industry. And like, yeah, I totally use that. That is what we use. Now Johnny can see, yeah, that is something. And they talked, you know, Johnny and his dad talked about it at home that night, right? So right now as things currently are, yeah, I don't see many kids making the connection um, between what they're learning necessarily and industry, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. Like I see plenty of opportunities where it could.
0: Yeah. Wow. Brian, well, this has been an amazing interview. Thank you so much for providing us with not only your insight, but just your energy. I think everyone has really just enjoyed it. So thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Oh my gosh, Lee, this has been such a pleasure. This was really a highlight for my day. So definitely appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, for everyone listening in, uh, just remember that if you uh, want, you can uh, v- visit the, the website that'll be included with this video. This podcast is available on Spotify, Google, and Apple. And uh, if you have any questions for either myself or Brian, please just relay them on whatever platform you're watching them on. We, we, we look at these comments. I'll make sure to put you in touch with Brian. You can find Brian on LinkedIn. That's how I found him. He's very passionate about education. And uh, join us next time with our guest, Valerie Gregory, formerly, uh, well, she just retired from Dean of Admissions at UVA from her, with her perspective. And from both Brian and I, we ask that everyone just stay positive and keep reaching out for help. And remember that we are all in this together. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please listen to our other episodes to gain further insight into the future of education.